0: Good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 2? We are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, just started a few weeks ago. And this morning, in our study, we come to familiar territory. I think all of us here know the story of Jesus' birth, as recorded in Matthew, Chapter 2, especially as we move into the Christmas season, which is rapidly approaching, we're going to see this, this passage portrayed on, uh, in uh, Christmas shows and pictured on Christmas cards. And of course, the ones in this passage that we're most familiar with that kind of stand out in the story are the wise men. But they really are not the focus of the passage, even though they, they seem to take center stage here. I want you to understand that the story presented in Matthew chapter 2 is really the tale of two kings. One was the true king, someone who had the right to reign and receive worship. The other was the usurper to the throne, someone who did not have the right to reign or receive worship. Of course, the true king's name is Jesus. The usurper or the false king's name is Herod the Great. And Matthew chapter 2 is all about Herod's attempt to keep the true king from reigning by trying to hold onto the throne by force even if it meant doing away with the rightful king. Now, I've divided this message into two parts. This morning, we'll look at Jesus the king. And next week, we'll look at Herod, who was a false king, a usurper of the throne. And so, let's begin with verse 1. It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. Now we've looked at these wise men before, but since we're here in Matthew 2, let me revisit this subject. The term wise men comes from the Greek word magoi, which we get our word magi from. The word magi is just simply a transliteration of that Greek word. That's all it is. And many have pointed out that there are few biblical stories that are as well-known, yet so clouded by myth and tradition as that of the story of the Magi or wise men mentioned here in Matthew. During the Middle Ages, legend developed that there were actually kings, and that there were three of them. and actually gives us their names. How they figured that out, I don't know. But the first they called Caspar, and then there was Balthazar and Melchior. Now, the problem with Christian tradition is it's often not correct. We'll see that more as we get into the study. But first of all, let me say this. The New Testament never calls them kings, but simply magi, which is the word we get our word magician from. Secondly, we don't know how many there were. Because they gave three gifts mentioned in verse 11, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, many have assumed there were three. But we read, or we're going to read in a little bit, that when they came into the city of Jerusalem, the whole city was disturbed. I don't think three people could do that. It was probably a whole caravan. In fact, it says there was a caravan. So this probably was consisted of many uh, of these magi. Who were they? Well, Herodotus, the Greek historian, says the magi were originally from media, not the news media, thank goodness, but from the area of media. The Medes were part of the Persian Empire. So these Magi, many believe, were Persian wise men. They were scholars. They were skilled in philosophy, medicine, and natural science. But they were also soothsayers, stargazers, and those who interpreted dreams. Because they are called Magi, which connects them to magic, people think they were magicians or sorcerers. Not true. They were probably more along the lines of astrologers, not that God mentioning them here is God's endorsement of astrology. But that's who they were. I think they got saved after they, after they came to Jesus. But that's where, how they started out, as astrologers. But you have to understand that these Persian uh, magi were also teachers and instructors of kings. These were guys who were pretty high up there. And they were, they were looked upon as men of holiness and wisdom. And so it says, They came from the east, saying, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. Or in other words, they were in the east, Persia, when they saw his star in the west. That's what they were saying here. And that's obvious because they traveled west from Persia to Jerusalem. Now, what was this star that they saw? We don't really know. There's been a lot of speculation as to what this star was. Was it a normal star? Was it... A supernatural star created by God for just this occasion to to point the way to the wise men to where Jesus was, the Christ child. Or was it some kind of an angel? You know, in the Bible, sometimes angels are referred to as stars. We don't know. I personally believe this star was no ordinary star. I believe it was something miraculous that was created by God for this occasion. It doesn't really matter, does it? All all that matters is they saw it and followed it. But how did they know it was his star, the king of the Jews? Remember, these wise men were a group of scholars who studied the stars. You say, but yes, but how did they associate a star with the coming of the Messiah? For that matter, how did a group of Persian wise men even know about the Messiah of Israel? Well, that's an excellent question. You have to understand that 600 years earlier, Daniel, and some others obviously, but Daniel was taken captive to Babylon. And if you read the book of Daniel, you see how he rose to a place of prominence uh, in the Babylonian court among the wise men. He was appointed one of the wise men in Babylon. Later, Babylon was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians, where once again Daniel rose to a place of prominence among the wise men in the Persian court. Now, as you study the book of Daniel, you realize Daniel was a pretty incredible guy. Pretty incredible guy. Here was a guy that was totally sold out to the Lord. He lived a life of total consecration and commitment. Even in Babylon and later in Persia, he never uh, he never compromised on his convictions. He never thought like, well, you know, what in Rome do is the Romans, okay? Uh, you know, I'm 700 miles from Jerusalem, and look, this is how they live in Babylon. Nobody could expect me to live any different than these folks. He didn't feel that way. He believed that even though he was 700 miles away from God's chosen place, where the tabernacle was—excuse me, the temple was—that Daniel said, "Wherever I am, I'm a worshiper, and I am committed to my God." So he lived like a Jew in the land of pagans. He lived a life of commitment. Well, don't you know that people can tell a phony a mile away, and they know somebody who is genuine, right? Not only was Daniel genuine in his commitment to God, but God's hand was upon him. He was given insight into dreams, and he had great wisdom that went beyond his contemporaries. They all saw that, no doubt, in Babylon, and then later when Persia took over. And I believe that among the wise men of Persia, Daniel was like the cream of the crop. He rose to the top. Everyone knew him. They all respected and revered him in a way. And because of that, it opened the door in their hearts to hear what he had to say. And Daniel, being sold off for God, what's the one thing a spirit-filled believer wants to do more than anything else? After you glorify God, you want to see people saved. And you, and you glorify God by helping others come to Christ. So Daniel no doubt wanted to tell these people about the God of Israel, the true and living God. And as he did, and as he witnessed to them about the God of Israel, he no doubt told them about God's promise that he was going to someday send a Messiah, a Redeemer, who would come down to the earth and walk among us. And that prophecy had been given about this coming Messiah, he no doubt Quoted them, many of these prophecies, but one of them we find in Numbers 24, verse 17, which says, This is a prophecy now of the coming Messiah. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. In other words, his coming is not yet, it's afar off, but he's coming. How will we know? A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And so Daniel had told them that there was a star that would would announce the coming of Messiah. Now you say, well, wait a minute now, that was 600 years earlier. Uh, This is 600 years later. Daniel is long gone. That's true. But you have to understand that we read after the Babylonian captivity, only 50,000 Jews came back to Israel from Babylon and later Persia, because that's where they were, Persia had conquered the area. But Only about 50,000 came back to repatriate the land. The other two and a half million people stayed in Babylon, where they had intermarried with some of the, the people there, had started businesses, had built houses, and they remained there, and the influence of biblical teaching, especially with regard to the Messiah, messianic teaching, remained strong in that area to New Testament times. So these magi, they knew all about these prophecies of the Messiah. They had been looking for his coming. They knew about when the star would come. Why? How did these guys know about when the star signaling Messiah's coming was going to appear? Because Daniel chapter 9, right? Daniel, God gave Daniel a prophecy. That from the time the commandment goes forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, start counting. 173,880 days later, Messiah is going to ride into Jerusalem. And God must have supernaturally revealed to the Magi that the star in the western sky was the very star that God had predicted would point to the birth of the Messiah. And so we read in verse 2, They came saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. I want to camp on that last phrase for the remainder of our time this morning. We have come to worship him, him being the true king, King Jesus. You realize that the whole purpose for Jesus coming to the earth the first time was so that God could seek and save those who would become true worshipers. Jesus expressed this in John chapter 4. If you turn there, let me give you the context while you're turning there. In John chapter 4, Jesus is having a conversation with a woman in Samaria. Now, she was an outcast. We know that from the story. Her own people didn't want to have anything to do with her. But she was a woman who was seeking. She was empty inside. She tried to fill that emptiness with with relationships with men. She'd been married and divorced five times, and the guy she was now living with was not even her husband. And Jesus pointed all that out to her as he witnessed to her about her need for living water, which was him, right? You're thirsting inside, he said, but it's a thirst that physical things, material things, relationships cannot satisfy. You need living water that will satisfy you from the inside out. That's the water that I came to give. But after Jesus identified that he was a prophet, of course, the, um, the, the thing that was in her heart the most was she wanted to find God. So a lot of people who are living immoral lives that are closer to God than you may think, they're trying to fill all that emptiness with all kinds of things. And we look at them and go, wow, what a sinful life they're living. And they are. But what's motivated them oftentimes is this emptiness inside. And so Jesus, knowing that, came to this woman. And when he identified her, when she knew he was a prophet, that desire of her heart came out. And she asked, If you're a prophet, tell me where I can find God. See, my people say God dwells on Mount Gerizim here in Samaria. You Jews say, No, he only dwells in on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. I want to find God. Where can I go to find God? She was a seeker. And Jesus said to her in verse 23, he says, Woman, I know you want to find God, but let me tell you this the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers. Now, listen, the true worshipers. What does that imply? That there are what? False worshipers. So, this idea that is so common today, it doesn't matter what God you worship, as long as you're sincere. Because God accepts all sincerity, right? Doesn't matter what your concept of God is or what God you worship, as long as you're sincere. Apparently, Jesus did not share that very tolerant, you know, broad kind of a view of the worship of God. He said there is true worship and there is false worship. He said that the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father, listen, in spirit. And in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. What does it mean? If this is what the Father desires? True worship, which is only found in worshipping him in spirit and in truth, what does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? Very simply, first of all. You cannot worship God in spirit until you are born of the spirit, right? You cannot worship God at all, acceptably, until you receive Christ into your life, into your heart as your Lord and Savior, and you are born from above or you're born again, born of the spirit. You know, over my years in ministry, I've heard different people make this statement. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm just not one of those born-again Christians, Now, I think I understand where they're coming from. There's a lot of characters on TV especially who tout themselves as born-again Christians. And yet they're phonies, always looking to make money off of people, not living scandals come out about them and so on. And because of all the hypocrisy people see associated with the term born-again, they say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm just not one of those born-again varieties. But you need to understand, there is only one type of Christian. And that is a born-again Christian, because that's what makes you a Christian, where you receive Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior, and the Spirit comes in, and you are given a new, a new nature. You are born of the Spirit. You are now connected with God. There is no such thing as a non-born-again Christian, because that's where the life comes from. So you can't really worship God no matter how sincere you are or how many times you go to church a week if you're not born of the Spirit. That's number one. Religion doesn't cut it. It's a relationship that God wants, which only comes by giving your heart to Christ. But then you have to worship God in truth. In truth. What does that mean? Look, if we're going to worship God properly and in an acceptable way, we have to do it according to what He has prescribed, right? Uh, I I know that growing up in the Catholic Church, I heard stories of people in, we'll say, the Philippines who are Catholics who would walk through uh, the villages on certain holy days, and they would walk and they would take whips and they would flagellate themselves as they walked, ripping their backs open and bleeding. Why? Because they were worshiping God. Look, that is sincere. I'm not doubting the sincerity of that worship. But it's not acceptable worship. To God why because Isaiah 53 said God has already punished his son for us he was, he was beaten for our sins he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement for our peace was laid upon him and by his stripes I am healed for me to try to add to that work isn't affront to God it says Jesus didn't suffer enough move over Lord let me finish the work you started I don't think there's a greater blasphemy than that So we have to worship God in spirit and in truth if it's going to be acceptable. So when I say Jesus Christ came to the earth to seek and save worshipers, you might say, wait a minute, he said I've come to seek and to save those who are lost. That's true. But you have to understand, to seek and to save the lost was a necessary prerequisite to fulfill God's ultimate goal, which was to gather to himself a community of people who would worship him in spirit and in truth for all eternity. See, saving us from hell, that was a nice byproduct, right? I mean, we'd all say amen to that, okay? But that was not We ask people, why did Jesus come? Why did he die for us? To save us from hell. I'm not disagreeing with that completely. But if that's what God's primary purpose was, to keep people from going to hell, guess what? i got a better solution. Just don't make anybody. Don't create anybody. Then nobody goes to hell. No, God's ultimate purpose in saving us was to make us true worshipers. Of course, the byproduct was to save us from hell. But that was only kind of a nice byproduct to the real emphasis or the real focus, which was that we would become a community of worshipers who would worship him in spirit and truth for all eternity. This is such an important concept. This is why we need to understand this. I mean, so many Christians, they they understand the basics, and yet they really miss the, the, the real impact of why Jesus came. He came to gather to himself a community of worshipers. I think it began with the Magi, who said, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we have seen his star, and we have come to worship him. You know, we're getting into the Christmas season. This is an interesting time. We celebrate Jesus' birthday at Christmas, right? Yet yeah, we give ourselves all the gifts. So I don't know how that really works. But what do you give God anyway? Talk about the person who everything. What do you give God that he really wants, right? What, do you, what kind of a gift can you really offer to God that he really wants? The only thing we can give him, the only thing he desires, is our love and our worship. That's it. But I'll tell you this, true worship isn't cheap. In fact, it's very costly. You know, the first time the word worship appears in the New Testament is right here in Matthew 2, verse 2. But the first time it appears in the Bible is in Genesis 22, verse 5. Why is it important? Because there is a law of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of Bible interpretation. There is a law in hermeneutics called the law of first mention. What is that? It's a law that says whenever you are wanting to understand a a major concept like atonement or like worship or even like marriage, you find the first place that concept is presented in the scriptures, study that passage because it becomes the prototype, the model for understanding that concept the rest of the way through the Bible. The very first time we see the word worship in the Bible is in Genesis 22 verse 5. Here's what the background was. God had promised Abraham a son. He waited 25 years for the birth of that son. Then Isaac was born. And when Isaac was about 33 years old, God appeared to Abraham one day and said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, take him on a three-day journey to Mount Moriah, and there I want you to sacrifice him to me. So the next morning, Abraham saddled up his donkeys, took some servants, took Isaac, some wood. They made the three-day journey to Mount Moriah, And he said to his servants, you stay here by the donkeys. The lad and I will go up to the top of the mount, and we will worship and come back here. Now, of course, God did not let Abraham go through with this. God doesn't want human sacrifice. But God was trying to prove a point. Abraham, do you love me more than even this son that you've waited so long for? But it's just interesting to me that this is the first place the word worship appears, And the first place it appears in the Bible, it is not associated with singing, as we often think of worship. I'm not saying singing is not a part of worship. I'm not saying that we can't worship God through singing. But we tend to make worship all about singing, right? And the first time this word appears in the Bible, it's not associated with singing. It's associated with what? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. And from that time on through the rest of the scriptures... Every time the word "worship" appears, or the concept appears, you've got to understand that sacrifice is at the core of what it means to really worship. David expressed it this way: When he wanted to worship God, and somebody said, "Look, I'm going to give you the place to build the altar, I'm going to give you the wood for the fire, I'm going to even give you the animals for the sacrifices." And David said, "No, I'm going to buy all of it with money, because I will not offer my God worship from that, which costs me nothing. Worship is costly. It involves a sacrifice. Mary expressed true worship in John 12. Remember how she had taken the uh, alabaster flask of very fragrant perfumed oil and broken and poured it on the head of Jesus, preparing his body for, for burial, basically, anointing him for, for death? And we read in the scriptures in John 12 that that little bottle, of alab- that alabaster flask of fragrant oil was oil of spikenard, very, very expensive stuff. It had to be brought down from the Himalayan mountains on the backs of camels, and then ground up into a paste, which will eventually uh, the oil was extracted from. Very costly procedure yielded a very precious commodity. In those days, people didn't have IRAs and retirement funds to fall back on when they couldn't work anymore. So they used to invest in perfumed oils and very expensive garments and so on and so forth. Mary had probably saved this oil for her retirement. It was worth about a year's wage. Yet she broke the bottle, which meant you had to use all of it. It was a sealed thing. You couldn't, it wasn't a pop top or a screw, you know, a cork, you know. It was, you, you, you broke it because you intended to use all of it. So her worship was not measured out a little dab here jesus a little dab of the perfumed oil there she meant she gave it all right it cost her something to worship her lord now the wise men also brought costly gifts to jesus as an act of worship to him we pick up the story in verse nine and we'll we'll study what comes before that next time because it pertains to herod but um when they came to King Herod to ask him, when, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? At one point they departed, verse 9. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, notice that, treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, this is where, again, our Christmas tradition harms us more than helps us. Instead of bringing clarity, it clouds. All right, what do I mean? Well, you know. In all the Christmas cards you've ever seen of the birth of Christ, all the Christmas shows, all the pageants, all the manger scenes that have on people's lawns, what do we always see? We always see the wise men with their camels kneeling by the manger along with the shepherds as the star hovers over the manger where Jesus has just been born, right? Now, the shepherds were there. Luke chapter 2 tells us that the angels announced to the shepherds that Jesus had just been born, so they got there at the manger right after. Jesus had been born. But the wise men, they didn't show up in Bethlehem until about 12 to 18 months later. By this time, Jesus was no longer in a manger. He and his family were now living in a house. Verse 11 tells us, when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh i don't think these gifts were by mistake at all i think that they were they knew exactly what they were doing they knew exactly what they i don't think they just decided let's take some gold oh frankincense is good uh how about some myrrh no i don't think it was like that i think that they knew exactly what they were doing you see each one of those gifts spoke of something of jesus ministry and mission The gold, that spoke of his kingship. Gold was the metal of kings. Frankincense, what does that speak of? That was an incense used by the priests in the tabernacle and later on the temple. Spoke of his priesthood. He's the great high priest, right? Myrrh, what is that? That was a spice that was used uh, not to embalm. The Jews didn't embalm. But when a a person died, they would use myrrh as a spice to bury with the body. Myrrh was an interesting... uh, kind of a spice i've never actually seen it but it was some kind of a bulb i think and you had to crush it to release the fragrance of it and that spoke of course of jesus death that as he was crushed bruised for our iniquities the fragrance of of salvation was released where we could become true worshipers offering up to god the fragrance of worship for all eternity through the lives that jesus redeemed through his death and resurrection so these were significant right so what am I saying? Am I saying to you guys that you can only worship the Lord through gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Am I saying that you, know, you can only worship God through costly gifts, the Lord Jesus through costly gifts? Well, kind of, but not like you think. See, God doesn't want your riches. He wants your life. Jesus gave his life for us, and now he wants us to give our lives to him as living sacrifices, which is our spiritual worship. We talked about true worship. Those who worship the Father must worship Him in spirit. Got to be born again of the spirit of Christian. In spirit and in truth. What is this truth? God doesn't want frankincense, gold, and myrrh from us. He doesn't want, you know, expensive gifts. He wants our lives. That's the true worship that He's after. We read about this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And I'll read it to you out of the uh, New American Standard Bible. Paul said, Therefore I urge you, brethren, talking to believers now, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. The Greek indicates the sum total of your life. Body, soul, spirit. Everything about you. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. See, The kind of worship that God wants from us is, very simply put, our whole life. Like Mary poured out all the fragrant oil, didn't keep anything back for herself. God wants us to pour out our whole lives to him in worship. That's why it's costly, by the way. That's why a lot of people can't handle true worship. They would rather go on offering the Lord, you know, a little lighting of a candle or a little gift here or there because it's a lot easier to give things than to give me. And God wants me. He doesn't want the gifts I give. He wants me as a living sacrifice. And let me say this. True worship starts in the heart. It starts with your attitude toward God himself before it ever gets translated into a lifestyle. It's got to start in the heart. You realize that the word worship comes from the word worth-ship. worth-ship. Indicating somebody who is worthy of your adoration and praise and so on. Of course, worth is a little hard to say, right? So they contracted it down to worship. But you understand the idea. In fact, the word in verse 11 here in Matthew 2, when the wise men came and they worshipped Jesus, the Greek word means to make obeisance, to reverence, to pay homage to. This is what, what is involved in the heart with regard to true worship. It starts in the heart before it ever gets translated out into a life of service. You first have to, in your heart, honor, reverence, respect, and feel that God is worthy of your life. There's a lot of Christians I don't think think that God is really worthy of their whole life. Oh, a part of their life. They want you know, to pour out the, the spikenard, but they want to dab it on Jesus here and there and keep most of it for themselves. It's not a total commitment kind of a thing. But true worship is total Commitment, total commitment. I won't have you turn there, but this week sometime you should read Malachi chapter 1. Why Malachi chapter 1? Because it becomes a nice contrast to what we're talking about here. We're talking about true worship, and Malachi chapter 1, it deals with dead worship, false worship. And God denounces the people of Israel for their dead worship, which was rooted in their lack of respect and reverence for him personally. And God opens up by saying, you are bringing me defiled sacrifices to worship me with. You don't love me. You don't respect me. You don't honor me. And they say, well, Lord, how could you say such a thing? I mean, we're just cut to the heart. How could you even say that to us? How could you say we don't really love you? And you know, God started out by saying, you know, does not a father have have honor from a son? Does not a, a, a master have have reverence from a servant? Well, I'm a father, where is my honor? I'm a master, where is my reverence? You don't honor and reverence me anymore. And the people said, like, Lord, how could you say that? How is it that we don't honor you? And that you bring me defiled sacrifices? You bring me sacrifice, you bring me. Animals that have been torn by other animals. You, br- you bring me animals that are sick, are lame, are on their last leg, right? I mean, how is this worshiping me? You know, in the Old Testament, God said, if you want to worship me, bring the animal sacrifices. Some of them were sin offerings, but some of them were, were sacrifices with regard to worship. And what did God say when he told Israel to bring him sacrifices for worship? It's got to be your best, right? No spot, no blemish, Right? Give God your best. That was the idea. He's worthy of it. So what was Israel doing at this time? You know, any sick, torn animal, you know, honey, honey, uh, the wolf got the little lamb in our, our, our barnyard and chewed it up. It's about ready to die. <gasps> Quick, grab it. Let's run it down to the temple before it croaks. Let's give it to God. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's no good to us anymore before the thing kicks off. Let's <laughs> offer it to God. Kill two birds with wood stone kind of a thing. And guess what? That's nice. You know, your attitude is really great. You're giving me that roadkill. He said, look. He says, you know what? You wouldn't give that junk to your governor. You wouldn't give that to an earthly leader. Yet you give it to me? Not only that, their whole attitude was wrong about worshiping God in general, about even having to, having to go to temple. He said in verse 13, also you say, oh, my, how tiresome it is. What? Oh, going to temple again. Like people today, oh, church again. Is it Sunday already? You know, it's a nice day out there. I mean, I want to go out and play golf. I mean, hey, I can worship God in the golf course, can't I? I don't have to go to church. That pastor, he's boring anyways. I want to get out here and God's creation. People were saying, oh, no, you know, temple again? God says, think of it. Animals that are stolen and mutilated, crippled and sick, presented as offerings? Should I accept this from from you? Such offerings as these, says the Lord? He would go on to say in the chapter, he says, I am a great king, and I want my name reverenced among the Gentiles. But if my own people don't reverence me, how are the Gentiles ever going to honor and reverence me? Good question. If we don't think God is worthy of our lives and our commitment and our, 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 our total commitment, I mean, how is the world going to ever... See that our God is to be honored. God said, I'm not pleased with you, nor will I accept these offerings from you. I don't want your junk, God is saying. I want your best. And today, of course, it would be like God saying, look, I want you to worship me with your life. You bring me the leftovers, the junk of your day. You know, at the end of the day, when you've done all the stuff you want to do and you're exhausted and you open my word and try to read a little bit and you read a couple of verses and you're dozing off or you want to pray a little bit and you say a few things and you're sleeping already, God is saying, how is that worshiping? How is that putting me first? Or you bring your, your offering of money and yet it's the leftovers of what you have. You've spent money on yourself all week. You've gone to the movies and you've gone out to eat and you've paid all your bills. And if there's a few pennies left, I'll bring it to church and give it to God. I mean, God says, how is this putting me first? How is this honoring me? You know, and as Christians, we often do things like that. And it's not that God needs our money. And believe me, if you know me long enough, you know that I never ask for money. This is not about asking you for money or, in a roundabout way, putting the pinch on you to give more to the church. <laughs> this is not what this is about. But you know what? We could talk about how spiritual we are. As D.L. Moody used to say, I could tell more about a person's checkbook than their prayer book with regard to their spirituality? Because that's where we all live, right? And if God is really first in our lives, it's going to show up in the way we live our lives and the way we give of the resources He has given us. But we don't do that oftentimes. We don't put God first. We act like Israel. We give Him the junk of our day, the leftovers of our time. Then we wonder why it's so hard in our lives. Why things are so hard. Why our lives just don't seem to be being blessed by God at all. We're violating the very principle that God is trying to educate Israel with regard to. I will have you turn to this passage, Haggai chapter 1, as we bring this to a close. Of course, Haggai's a minor prophet, stuck back in there somewhere. You'll have to dig it out. i tell you the page number, but it wouldn't help you. But let me give you the background here real quickly. This is now after the Babylonian captivity. Of course, the Babylonians had... Raised Jerusalem. They tore it to the ground. And the temple included. It was, a, it was a pile of rubble, the whole city. When Cyrus finally allowed the Jews to go back to Israel, only about 50,000 took up the offer. Now, I have to give them credit. At least they were the 50,000 of the most committed, right? Because only the most committed were willing to make that arduous journey 700 and some plus miles back to Jerusalem to find a city in rubble where it was going to take an awful lot of time, effort, and sacrifice to rebuild that thing. So I give them credit on that level. And they came back, and they started to clear away the temple mount, and they laid the foundation for a new temple. But things were hard, and they got discouraged. And so you know what they did? They walked away. And they started to focus all their time and attention building their own houses. And the house of God was left in ruins. Of course, without the temple, you couldn't have sacrifices without sacrifices you couldn't have worship and without worship true worship you couldn't have the blessing of God upon the land and so God sends the prophet Haggai to them and says through the prophet verse 4 is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins now therefore thus says the Lord of hosts consider your ways think about this guys You have sown much, but you bring in little. Why is it that you, the more seeds you sow, the less crops you harvest? You ever thought about that kind of saying? You eat, but do not have enough to eat. You drink, are never filled with drink. You never have enough to eat or drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. He who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. God says, have you thought about this? You're working two and three jobs, and yet you never have any money. You bring it home, you put it in bags, with, it seems like they got holes in it. You ever been there? Where's all the money going? Where's all the money going? We never have enough money to pay the bills, or, or this or that. Listen to what God said. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, listen, I blew it away. All your hard work trying to make money? God says, I keep blowing it away. Why? Because of my house that is in ruins. While every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains, on the grain and new wine and the oil. On whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. God said, I did that. I will not let you prosper with your priorities out of whack. That's the whole issue here. The people had gotten their priorities out of whack. God was no longer first. They had put themselves first. Listen to me. Whatever consumes our hearts will control our lives. Jesus put it this way. Whatever you value, wherever your treasure is, that's going to have your heart, right? And God says, if I am not your first love, if I am not first in your life, if your life doesn't revolve around me, as I am on the throne of your heart as king, ruling over your life. And you know what? You are not going to know blessing. I won't bless a person's life who is putting themselves before me. Some very interesting things here. True worship is really all about getting our priorities straight. It's about stepping off the throne of our lives and saying, Jesus, you need to sit down. I've been trying to get you, Lord, to revolve around me. I need to start revolving around you. You need to be the center. You need to be on the throne. See, the question I want to leave you with, do we, like the wise men, give Jesus our best? as a form of true worship, or do we offer him the leftovers of our time, money, and affections? I think the real message of Jesus' birth in Matthew 2 is that God gave to the world the gift of his Son so that we, in turn, could give to him the gift of worship. But not with gold or incense, but with our lives and with all of our hearts. Hymn writer John Menzel understood this when he wrote, Listen, O oh, worship the Lord, In the beauty of holiness, bow down before him his glory, proclaim. With gold of obedience and incense of lowliness, kneel and adore him. The Lord is his name. It's a lifestyle, isn't it? And so once again, in Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. You can't worship him until he's king. Until he's enthroned in your heart as king. Then you can offer him up true worship. That's exactly what the Lord wants for all of us. Yes, he wants to save us from hell. But his ultimate purpose is to make us true worshipers. Read Revelation. All of human history culminates in the worship of God in heaven for all eternity. Why don't we get a head start in that right now? All right? And begin to get our priorities straight, begin to understand what worship is really all about. Now, not everybody wants to worship the true king. That's true. Next week, we'll see a man who represents all of those who want to stay on the throne of their own life. In fact, he represents all of us before we step down from that throne and let Jesus sit down. So Herod becomes a type of every unbeliever that has ever lived who has rejected the true king from sitting on the throne and by force will do whatever he or she has to do to keep the king from reigning over their life. Sobering lesson next week as we see God use Herod as an object lesson to teach the rest of us what not to do. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank and praise you, Lord, that you have opened our eyes and invited us to become true worshipers. And Father, since we're going to be spending eternity worshiping you, Lord, give us grace to start right now with all of our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of worshiping you with our lives. It's only a life lived for your glory. That is only a life that's worth living at all. And so, Lord, we thank you. Make us true worshipers, Lord. Give us a heart to so honor you, love you, reverence you, respect you, that everything we do puts you at the center and says, how can I glorify my God through my life today? That we might lay ourselves on the altar of sacrifice every morning and say, Father, today, I offer myself to you anew. Take me and use me, that my life might bring you glory, because I seek to worship you. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.